What do editors want? It's a question that many creative writers have asked themselves or more likely muttered dejectedly after a frustrating rejection. I'm Rachel Thompson, author and literary magazine editor and your podcast host. The Lit Mag Love podcast grew out of my course by the same name, and I continue to seek out answers to this question of what editors want by going right to the source. I bring you interviews and insights about how to improve and publish your writing. episode, I talk with Sakina Fakri and Diana McClure, founders of Azure Magazine. Azure accepts literary fiction, creative nonfiction, excerpts, screenplays, stage plays, fragments, meanderings, philosophy, and poetry in submissions of up to 50 pages. They don't charge fees for submissions, and here's something interesting. If your submission is part of a novel-length work or feature-length screenplay, there exists the possibility of publishing it in installments in future issues. In the episode, we talk about the connection of interiority to empathy, how writers give readers that inner experience of something they do not understand. Listen to my conversation with Sakina Fakhri and Diana McClure and learn more about the unique, cerebral, and empathetic writing they love to publish in Azure. So welcome to the podcast, Sakina Fakhri and Diana McClure. I'm really pleased to have you here for Lit Mag Love. Thank you. Thank you so much. Maybe you can both tell us a bit about what your different roles are at Azura magazine? Well, um, we actually should probably share all the roles to some extent. Um, it's really a collaborative project where we make mutual decisions about all of the stories. We consult each other on, you know, design, publication, you know, the business side of it. I will say one thing that we probably each take on our uh, different roles with is designing the print journal, where I, I work on more of the visual aspects of it, and um, Sakina uh, sets up a lot of the text-based aspects of it. And I know you're each writers, and I'm wondering, I always like to know people's origin stories as writers. So, Sakina, do you want to talk about how you became a writer, and did you know other writers when you were growing up? Um, sure. I, I've i always uh, known I wanted to be a writer ever since I was a reader. So I guess since I was a very little kid, since I was uh, three or four, uh, probably four, I can't remember before that. Um, and... Uh, when I grew up, I actually wasn't in contact with very many writers. So it was something I sort of did very privately and didn't discuss with people until, uh, until college. Um, and I also enjoy reading particularly the, the classics, not as much contemporary literature, uh, which has made this journal very interesting, an interesting experience for me. But I think because of that, when I was, uh, I majored in literature in college and I got the chance to take some writing courses. So that was the first time for me actually discussing it in a literary community, which was, uh, it was very interesting to get feedback on my writing in that sense. And then when I was in a master's program that focused on writing, that was when I first met other novelists like myself. And how about for you, Diana? My first writing jobs were actually doing sports journalism in high school because I was an athlete. And then, but it was just something that I did. I didn't really think about being a writer. And um, I got more involved in the visual arts in my 20s. And a lot of what I was doing was sort of related to my thoughts, you know, so like sociopolitical thinking. And so other people were like, you should write. So that's how I got uh, started writing art criticism. And I decided I wanted to sort of explore writing in other contexts. So, you know, I kind of consciously took a fiction writing course and really focused on fiction. And during that time is when I met Sakina and we decided to do this project. It sounds like you both complement each other really well. And uh, you're talking about how you do the visual part of the, of the magazine as a visual and mixed media artist. What comes to you first when you're working on a project? Is it visuals or text? That's an interesting question. I used to, I, when I first was like developing an art practice, I made a lot of text and image-based projects. So it, Im- it involved both. So I think I'm, I'm kind of an interdisciplinary person. I like to look at the overlap um, between different mediums and different, you know, obviously sort of art forms and 
cultural context and all of that. I, I like over, overlap, intersections, seeing where things um, connect or complement. Um, so it's kind of hard to say. Lately, I have really been putting some conscious thought in the dif into the difference between my sort of writing and critical analytical mind and my the sort of more sensory how I engage like visually is more of a sensory it doesn't have a lot to do with uh, words per se it's like absorbing environments and um, energy and things like that and so I'm sort of right now paying a lot of attention to those differences and actually trying to balance them a bit more consciously. Mm -hmm. I, w I would say um, that that's actually a very good example of how you mentioned that our strengths complement each other because I see things exactly the opposite way. Um, I see most things in the, f in the form of words and it's even the images I see because I tend to really enjoy writing lyrically or imagistically and introspectively more than about tangible concrete scenes. Having to create a physical product like the journal, it's always very, we have an illustrator who uh, creates a black and white illustration for each piece that we publish, which I originally sort of only look at through literary eyes. So I see the abstract sort of wordscape behind it. And it's very interesting to see how that can be translated into a 3D sensory thing. Yeah, our illustrator is um, Evgenia Barsheva and she's originally from Moscow, Russia. Um, and she is um, a real amazing illustrator. And it's, that's also a, another aspect of this collaborative process is her interpretation of stories. And we, she, we don't give her any direction. Um, she's free to draw however she interprets a scene or a story. Occasionally, one of the writers might have a particular interest in an image for the story, which we'll, we'll forward to her, but she's under no obligation to follow that. So there really are sort of, you know, multiple interpretations of a story coming together to create the online journal and the print journal. Uh, so Kina, I know you write political satire. So what's it like to find humor in politics these days, if, if we can jump right into that? So it's interesting you asked that because just yesterday I was sort of constructing a new plot for a novel and trying to find the balance between being too mentally sort of journalistic and illustrating characters uh, and trying to bring it into the fictional realm. I One thing I do is I tend to create settings that are not easily placeable in time or even in space. Like my first novel, it's set in the middle of the Sahara Desert, which was a nice blank canvas for me. And I was able to build a village in that, in that space that fit all of the aspects that I needed to exist without going into the supernatural aspect, which is a different kind of world creation, I think. So uh, I, what I tend to do is take aspects of different people, usually people uh, from my life, as well as public figures and the two kinds of characters I create are usually introspective characters who are conglomerations of uh, real life people who tend to have the views of the other side, which are more public figures and issues and things like that. Um, and those I enjoy portraying sort of uh, in a cartoonish, absurdist fashion. Uh, so really exaggerating that, but then through the eyes of a more personal view of people, rather an internal view, looking at something that is constructed completely externally, which would be like celebrity or, you know, the, the public face of a political figure, which is very different, I'm sure, than the private face of one. So I think it's negotiating between the face-off of those two things. That's the space where political satire happens, uh, where something that is real or should be genuine or authentic comes into contact with something that's created simply for an image. And then the, you asked about humor, and then the humor I think is in the clash between those two things, how the image couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly be real in a certain way, and if there's an angle to look at it humorously, then it's, it's a way of chafing it down back to humanity. Yeah, and I, I just, just wanna add to a, a little bit that Sakina's talking about there. One aspect of this journal and the writing we look for has to do with our interest in interior, the interiority that's possible through fiction um, and really on a larger sort of um, humanitarian level for us, we feel that the investigation of the inner self um, is really necessary to move towards a more empathetic and peaceful 
and sort of forward thinking world. And that's the particular sort of quality that we feel fiction can really offer. You know, it's a really interesting space to help people to engage with their inner selves that can't necessarily happen as much um, through other creative mediums. Yeah, definitely. I, I love what you say about that moving toward a more empathetic self, I guess. And and even Sakina talking about using these composites of of characters of people from your life to I guess maybe empathize with them a bit, but also portray some of the, like you said, the absurdist things that are happening in politics. From your website you wrote that we believe the value of creative writing and narrative fiction as tools to engage with social opinions, histories, moral codes is vital to personal, political, and social evolution. So that connects, I think, with what you were saying. Can you speak more about that belief? And and I do like to emphasize sort of the importance of literary writing and what it means in the world at, at any time. But I mean, I guess, in particular, the times that that we're in too, because that's where we are. So uh, I know there uh, a few years ago were a lot of there were a lot of studies that suddenly had come out on <clears throat> readings of Kafka and the idea that empathy could be uh, created and encouraged in people who who were readers of novels like this, partly because you approach characters, even uh, sort of unsympathetic seeming characters from the inside and that 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 is something unique perhaps to literature because you're actually able to see the words and thought processes maybe even different than film in which you're still looking at the person um and so in that sense i think the interiority can reveal an empathy and can create a more a sympathetic outline that can be identified with and in that sense taking something that's very global, issues that are very global and, you know, issues that could even be uh, seen deplorably in certain ways. And then to create from that a reality that is new and different in a form that the writer has, you know, complete freedom of creation. And then to illuminate that, so to show the reader how you can get from one deplorable reality to a completely new reality that you're actually able to create and visualize. One thing for me, the importance of interiority is also that um, you see sort of the vulnerability of being human and also the um, there's a space of ambiguity. It's not an absolute space. It's not a black and white space. It's not really a space of firm, unmovable positions, whereas the external presentation that people put to the world a lot of time has is is grounded in these sort of absolutes um so i think like that ability to see sort of the movement of um feelings and ideas and the possibility for transformation that can happen in the inner life is really educational to a reader to apply it to their own life and i just i think i just in particular there's um, you know, writers can really give you that inner experience of something that you don't understand and help you to make sense of it. And I think that's like a really valuable um, aspect of reading and fiction. And I also think that fiction is very much a space of co-creation between the reader and the writer. Um, and I particularly, probably because I'm a visual person as well, enjoy that participation that I have in a book of um, adding a visual to what I'm reading. Um, so I all, you know, I'm getting a visual experience that I can, you know, re uh, respond to what the writer is writing. And then I'm also getting sort of a inspiration or stimulant or revelation or epiphany to my own sort of inner understanding of ideas about the world or people or places. So I just think it's a really rich space, the space of, you know, creative writing and reading. I love that connection you're saying about that co-creation between the reader and the writer. I, I feel like that comes across in poetry as a genre, I think, as well, too. Can you talk a bit about other world realism and what you love about that? Um, so part of what defines uh, for us as a literary genre, other world realism, is uh, the idea that it's it's not just 
the plot and narrative, like I said, that exists kind of in this blank slate new forum of this new world that can be envisioned. Um, but I think it's also in the language. Uh, so the same way, for example, you know, we would think of special effects or something like that. Uh, I call that sort of in the literary world, the idea of a special effect where a where the image that you would expect to see actually has a certain a, a tint or a lens on it linguistically with a certain linguistic dexterity as we describe it. Uh, someone who has great control over the language and can actually manipulate that as well as manipulating the idea of the world that they're representing. Uh, so in, in every word, there's a flavor of this new otherworldly sense, a world that has fully been created by the writer but informed by, by our concrete world. Yeah, and I think it's also like this this space of um, like Sakina is saying, like you're grounded. We're grounded in realism, and you know, wanting to evolve humanity forward through literature. But it's it's also I think sort of this belief in um, the possibility of imagining these new spaces um, that where we're evolving from this sort of concrete reality we're in now, and that there is the possibility to move in to this evolved, um, like I was saying, more empathetic space. And in particular for me, I don't really find um, dystopian literature, like there seems to be this emphasis on dystopian literature, movies, a lot of things right now, and maybe even in the sci-fi world to some extent. Um, But I think it's actually, it's it's not as difficult to create or to to create things um, organized around tragedy and um, hardship and negativity. I think imagining these new spaces of a more evolved human existence is actually a lot harder. Um, so, you know, sort of tackling these personal, communal, societal issues through fiction that can help move us forward, I think, is part of also what is um, behind this idea of otherworld realism. Uh, and I'd like to add also. Um, like Diana was saying, that fiction has this this very specific way of being able to do that. And I think uh, part of the other world is also, uh, given that it's the novelty of it, I think it's the continuous subversion of expectation or defamiliarization or never quite... Uh, never quite having the sort of footing as you read where you precisely know the, the way that what is about to be said will be said, uh, which causes, I think, a level of self-reflection as well as reflection on the content that's actually being stated. Uh, and then I think that you know can be done in different ways. So we have some stories that I would say are primarily uh, tonally very humorous, um, and I think that's a way of keeping someone mentally on their toes, continually in a state of expectation and delight. Um, where they would want to step into this other world. And I, I think that's key as well. Um, or it could be lyricism uh, that keeps them reading to the next phrase, uh, never beginning a sentence, knowing uh, and wanting to skim the end because you feel like you already know how it will go. And so I think it's the sort of the surface of the water seems different and it betokens the fact that what's underneath might be different as well. And I think that gets a level of engagement, I hope, from our readers. Uh, more so than just stark realism. One of the reasons I love doing these interviews with editors is is what you were saying, Diana, about the purpose of this writing is to lead humanity forward through literature. And that's not a small thing. It's it's a very big thing. And it's something I think that editors who are purpose-driven by that, I think, are really contributing to that greater empathy. And, and I like what you said, too, about dystopian literature being so all the rage right now and how you at the journal are trying to push things I mean obviously not in in a Pollyanna kind of way forward but but thinking about um, new ways of understanding the world I like also the hint that you're giving us Akina about never reading a sentence wanting to skim to the end so it's something to think about for people who are submitting to the journal which I want to talk about in a minute too but before then we're going to take a short break And then we'll be back to talk about submitting to Azure. LitMagLove is presented by LitMagLove, my online course to help you publish in journals. You can get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. 
The course is full of strategy, but I think what distinguishes this course from other writing programs is its heart. There's a lot of love and support in the warm community of writers who take the course. Course registration opens soon as of this recording and only a couple times per year. To get more details and updates when this course opens, head on over to litmaglove.com. So I'm back with Sakina Fakri and Diana McClure from Azure Magazine, and we're going to talk some specifics now about submitting what you'd like in submissions to the publication and also what um, what maybe you've seen before and what kind of things you want to see more of. So before I launch into that specific stuff, though, I want to ask you about mentoring. And I think, I mean, that is part of the editorial process often. But how do you see mentoring happening within your writing communities and with Azure? So I think uh, part of my motivation was first starting the journal, uh, which is that writing was all always something very private for me, but not out of choice, just because I didn't have a physical community around me. And obviously, you know, there was no internet at that time or very little. uh, So it wasn't possible in that sense. So I had to actually find people in geographic proximity, uh, which wasn't always possible. So part of why, you know, 30 years later, I wanted to start this journal was uh, that it was actually difficult for me to find stuff that I really enjoyed reading. Because like I said, you know, uh, most of the trends in literature, partly the dystopia like Diana was talking about, and then just in terms of uh, linguistic style, uh, I wasn't able to find them, but I happened to know that a lot of my friends in these writing programs were writing writing things like this. It's simply that uh, they weren't the things that were necessarily being published. Uh, there wasn't a space for them to be published, but there was certainly space for them to be written and for them to be enjoyed. Uh, it was just happening in these little private spheres. It wasn't being disseminated on a larger level. So what I sort of wanted was to create that space and then hope that people would gravitate towards it. Um, And that's one of the reasons that we named it group, because I think we consider the company partly, you know, ourselves, me and uh, Diana and our illustrator, but we like to keep in touch with our writers. We often invite uh, writers that we publish uh, who are, you know, come to us through general submissions or through our website whom we did not previously know, but often we write back to them and ask them to submit more work and encourage them to think of themselves as part of our community. So basically, you know, once you join us, you're sort of in that a part of part of the mission. And, uh, you know, as a, a small example, uh, we don't put um, in our print anthologies, we purposely did not put a yearly date on each one, like, you know, 2017, 2018. We do on the website, but we wanted the print to be sort of timeless and not necessarily this is the literature of 2018, but that this is literature that can survive. Uh, and these people are part of our group, not just, you know, at a certain time stamp or a certain period. Um, so I'm hoping that that will be get more people who are drawn to reading it because they enjoy the style and then perhaps writing and then actually choosing to submit to us. Yeah. And I think, um, like uh, Sakina was saying, several writers who we've published have sort of echoed the same sentiment that, oh, this is that experimental piece that no one else would publish. So I think there is a sort of um, space in Azuri where we're really interested in experimentation. I, I will say Sakina has a very high bar <laughs> for um, the level of writing so it, that, that's a high bar, but then above that, we're interested in, you know, experimentation, I think, a lot. So as far as, I, I don't know, like, if the word mentoring exactly fits um, what we're doing, I feel it's more collaboration, conversation, you know, we're interested in these people's experimentations that's sort of outside the norm, and um, the sort of the excitement of discovering something new in that way. And it's also online. We have people, we've had uh, submissions from the United States, you know, across California, Midwest, New York, but also from um, Brazil, Bosnia, England, you know, so it's really kind of an internet space in a certain way. I do think sometimes men- mentorship happens in more of an intimate um, exchange with people 
So it's, I feel like it's a bit of a different um, engagement with people. But for me, the um, experimentation of having a collaborative partnership with Sakina, and we were just talking about this recently of we each have different tastes. I, I read probably more international literary fiction, but we have to agree on every piece we select. You know, we can eat, we can, if one of us is like, I don't like it or I don't, it doesn't work for me, then it doesn't go in the journal. We both have to like something. So in a sense, we're creating this sort of third entity that's not just mine or just hers. So that level of experimentation is happening. And then also with some of what we accept um, is definitely experimental work. So I don't know. I mean, I think maybe it's just providing a space for that more so than actually mentoring um, specific writers. I think in your answer to I came to the conclusion that I've been mispronouncing the name of your journal. Is it Azuri? Is that the right way to say it? You know, we're actually flexible about how you pronounce it. There's many ways um, it could be pronounced as well as Lazule Literary Group. So we're open to it. It's okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I actually think the, uh, the way Diana pronounces it is very pretty. She says Azure. Um, I say Azure. Uh, but of course, when I say that, nobody knows how to Google it or spell it <laughs> because that sounds nothing like the way it's actually spelled. Um, so we, we sort of like the idea that everyone would pronounce it a different way or Azure also. Yeah, that was the one that I chose. <laughs> so. it's, it's artful. I, I like the variety. <laughs> You're getting submissions, like you said, from your collaborative community of people that want to send you work or some of them you haven't met yet. What kind of submissions do you not want to receive in your inbox? What, what have you seen too much of? We're open to seeing anything because I, I fear that sometimes what people submit, you know, uh, if it's been gone over in writing workshops and things like that, they have an idea of people's perceptions of it, which may not be our perception of it. Oftentimes I've had, we've had edited pieces and I've asked what is the unedited version, the one that before you workshopped it, before everyone sort of created into this collective, diluted, more um, something that would appeal to everyone because we don't necessarily need to appeal to everyone. Like Diana said, we want a very specific intimate space. So rather than having, you know, 2000 people kind of like something, we would prefer if 100 people absolutely loved it. And I think a multiplicity of that in the world of things that people love, uh, we, we would prefer much more than, you know, one thing that would appeal to everyone. So in that sense, I would invite readers not to hesitate before sending. Um, but if it's something that is authentically true and novel to themselves, if it's not a piece where they were trying to mimic or trying to be something that the world wanted them to be, I think we would be open to looking at it and, um, you know, we have a list of writers on the website that we admire, but, it, you know, like, for example, my uh, favorite writer of all time is Virginia Woolf. Um, but if at, at that time, you know, there was a magazine, they couldn't have put out a missive, like, please write like Virginia Woolf. We like writers like this. Uh, and I'm afraid that those writers then would not have submitted uh, if there was some kind of, you know, specific dictive like that, because nothing like that existed before. So it's possible that we would get submissions of things we've never imagined before, which has happened. Um, so I would say if you as the submitter find it novel, perhaps even to yourself, and something that doesn't have another space in the world, and uh, that sort of fits our mission statement. So certainly nothing, you know, that uh, promotes disunity or lack of empathy. Th those would be the things I think we would draw a hard line on. Yeah. I think for the most part, most of the work taps into some sort of philosophical element. Would you say that, Sakina? Yeah, I think, and actually we've had a lot of uh, submissions from people who have said they actually have studied philosophy and have written pieces that they didn't, they weren't quite sure what genre it would have fit into. Uh, we had one writer who wrote a list of aphorisms. So basically, you know, numbered, I, I think it was like one to 40 or something. Each one was just a little paragraph, definitions of things uh, that it sort of had like a political thread running through it. It was, it was very witty, um, but it was very unique. Uh, not of a particular genre that I think one would generally list as uh, inviting submissions for. But uh, you mentioned 
philosophical. And I think that that one was almost sort of straight philosophy. And then I noticed after that, we ended up getting sort of a, a small barrage of other philosophical pieces, which we really, really enjoyed. One that just came to mind for me, which will be out in volume two's print issue, um, is a poem called Sister Alone. And I think it's very specific, specific about an older woman who manages a farm by herself. More than likely she's in the Midwest, but it really taps into something larger about being female, doing hard labor, disrupting sort of the, you know, the, the status quo of a small town by being different. So it's like, although that is like very specific to the character in the poem, it's really tapping into some much larger conversations. And I would say like you asked, what would we like to see less of as far as submissions? I think there's a fine line between writing a personal story and making it just about yourself and writing a personal story that is accessible um, to a larger audience because you're tapping into some more, um, you know, sort of universal or philosophical themes. Um, so we're really, if it's going to be real personal, it, it needs to be tapping into something larger. I think personally, Sakina, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a very, very good way to put it. And we do sometimes receive submissions that uh, that are very personal, and sometimes they're compelling. But we, part of the space that we're creating has uh, has this purpose. And even for me, the reason that I read fiction, uh, it often has that purpose. So it, it does go beyond the personal. You're predicting a question that I like to ask editors about, this, like the works that you think of as important that you've published in a serve. and so. You've talked about um, that piece that was about doing hard labor and, and connected to those bigger cerebral themes, but also had that, that personal aspect to it. Are there other pieces that stand out as important that you've published? So I think a part of what we're drawn to are these uh, very specifically painted locales that maybe aren't generally written about or are windows into new places. Again, you know, on the bedrock of the linguistic dexterity that I was talking about, which helps you feel the place very viscerally. So, uh, for example, one of them takes place uh, called Mirage, Oklahoma. So it's actually a fictional Wikipedia article, but it is actually a real town where the author grew up in. Uh, but it's written, it's like a Wikipedia article written through lyricism and poetry uh, in, instead of journalistically. And it's uh, in army base in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, with a lot of uh, sort of dis disparate parts within it and different groups, different classes uh, that are clashing in these moments. So that was one. Um, we also have a few that are border stories, so engaging issues of sort of post-colonialism and things like that. Susuros de Recurrencia by Franco Strong is one that comes to mind, uh, which is in our volume one print anthology. Yeah, I would like to echo uh, Mirage, Oklahoma, which is by Mark P. Lolly. That's a really, really stunning piece, I feel. And I think an interesting part of our collaboration and what ends up getting picked is there's, um, you know, form is equally as important as content. And I'm really, really interested in content. Um, like some, you know, interesting uh, interpretation of um, social dynamics. And I in particular like cross-cultural content within a story. There's a story that's coming out in our next, it's, it's part of volume three, it's not published yet, but that, um, you know, travel, it, what, the main character is from Ireland, his girlfriend is from America, they're in Vienna, they go to, I think, Transylvania, but embedded within all of that is, is a sort of discourse around class, and probably some other things, Sakina, I don't know if you can touch on that as well, but that type of thing, I just think there's sort of continually encouraging readers through what we choose to be able to engage with multiple perspectives, you know, and have room for um, sort of a dialogue between multiple perspectives take place, I think is something that 
I really appreciate and perhaps that ex- sort of experimental and experimental stories and really just really good writing is, is really um, capable of giving readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I uh, very much agree with that, Diana, um, especially about the, you know, the form and the content. Two other ones that came to mind uh, when you mentioned some of those things um, about experimenting with the form uh, in order to illuminate place. Uh, one of the, uh, another early story we had from volume one is called Warden Cliff, which is a particular place uh, on, a, on a beach uh, by Barbara Didino. And what was interesting about the form of that one for us is that it's told uh, sort of from a multi-perspective sense. So it's told from uh, the perspective of different ages. Uh, and from different characters, but you you interestingly get the sense that they are from a very similar voice, but if the same per- person or idea of a person was fractured into one young man, one young, young woman, and one old blind wo- woman who is the one actually narrating the story. So it flips back and forth between these characters through, you know, sometimes line by line, uh, switching from I- italics to unitalicized prose from this young woman to the old woman. Um, the idea of a narrator who, who is blind, but from whose eyes you are seeing, and her description of the other characters has to necessarily uh, be internal and be based on these other senses, not on and on the actions of that other character and the words, uh, rather than you know knee jerk visual reactions, which is a completely other way of seeing the world. I think than most of us are used to a first impression being vis- visual. So in that sense, I, I also think the differences in seeing things at, at different ages and stages of life uh, is, a, is another type of difference to, or variety to explore. And you mentioned these are in volume one. Are you able, you're still able to order that on your website, I imagine? I, I'm fascinated by the stories. I'd love to read them. Yes, they're on the, uh, they're available through our website um, or through Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com, and, and uh, there are a few other independent bookstores if you're in New York City where we have it physically available. And what should writers, so once a writer has a piece accepted by you, what should they expect? Do you make developmental suggestions or how closely do you work with the writers who submit? Uh, I mentioned at the beginning, I wanted to avoid this writing workshop dynamic, which I've seen over and over again, sitting in a workshop and everyone else's voices come into this one piece. uh, And it turns into this conglomeration of something which is less raw than the original and more polished maybe, but less raw. And it was important to me to really maintain that rawness over whatever could be gained by our editing every piece that we get. Um, that being said, we're looking for stuff that is in a finished state already uh, so that we don't have to put our fingers in it and make it, you know, like Diana was saying, less mentoring and more of a collective, a collaboration. So the, the writers that send work to us, we consider as, as equals, as, you know, we are writers and artists and so are they. So we try not to have some particular special literary dominion uh, above editing them. But if we do look at typos and things like that, <clears throat> and you know, once in a while we will uh, suggest, we'll, we'll love a story very much, uh, but we'll suggest maybe a few points of contention, a paragraph here or there. Um, but our promise to the writers is never to publish something without their, publish a change without their consent. So we always run it by them. Um, and then after they submit, we also, uh, you know, for, for a few weeks anyway, if we're open to edits that they have of things they want to change that they've realized after the fact. I think that sums it up. And I, I just to echo what um, Sakina said, I think we do, we see ourselves as artists and writers as well. And we're engaging with other artists and writers. So um, we're interested in what they have to offer. They're the Like she said, the pureness, the rawness of it. Um, and there's so many, you know, places in life in the world in our in jobs and all these other places where you're censored or edited or you have to adjust some kind of standard. So it's really refreshing to collaborate and create this project where you get to just be you and put what you want out. And we we allow Sakina and I allow each other to be the same way, you know? 
our authority, we both have equal authority. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like agency and authority. And we like to give that to the writers as well. Rawness is a great word, I think, to describe the best writing in literary magazines, because it is something that hasn't gone through, like you said, all the things it has to go through to get into a book form. What is the current acceptance rate at Ezra? Do you have stats on that? Do you know offhand? So we get about, for each issue, I would say, let's say two, 2,000 submissions, something like, something like that. We, we tend to get between three and 400 a month. And we, in each issue, we publish between three to five. And then we also um, run a contest um, two to three times a year. So that's a separate piece that I'm not sure how many submissions we get for that. But um, how does that work behind the scenes? Are you doing the first reading for the submissions? Are you doing the first reading for the contest submissions? Uh, we read everything. It's just, it's just us. And then the contest, you have different judges or you're the judges as well? We're the, we're the judges as well. Wow, that's a lot of reading then for you. Are there ways that editing has informed your own writing? I don't know about the, actu- the actual act of editing the journal, because like I said, we try not to touch it too much. But I do feel, uh, I do feel inspired, because you know, I do feel a lag in my own writing, and there's a lot of self-criticism and self-loathing as you write. And then I'm you know, daily reading these submissions of people who, uh, regardless of whatever criticism they've re- received or uh, m- more likely just given themselves, they they have done it. It's not a blank page that I'm reading ever, right? Everything I click on has writing on it. So I, I think that gives me the impetus um, and the security somehow to write at least at least something because that's what all, all of these hundreds of people have done and have been open enough to share it. So that makes me, I guess, less fearful. Um, and I don't, I don't know that it makes my actual writing that, that much different because like I said, we read such a variety and it's, it's not that I read things that, you know, I suddenly think I want my writing to be exactly like this, but I do read pieces and I think I want my writing to be at the level of greatness of this and then to try to achieve that in my own way. So I, I, I do think at times when I'm in, you know, severe writer's block, it is very helpful to just go into those submissions and click through and read them as, as something active rather than something stagnant. Yeah, I, I definitely, my respect for writers who are really um, creating work at a high level has definitely grown. Um, and just the ability to invent like invention is much different than criticism. So that distinction is really more and more evident to me. And I like, I, I think for me too, it's, it's really, it's really kind of pleasurable to sit down and read through submissions and just the, you know, the variety of things that we come across and to also, it's fun sometimes to try to really get the person's message like what are what what was their real intention behind this story you know what point are they really trying to make or sometimes we get funny really like extra raw funny pieces of writing that aren't appropriate for our journal but like the language that the way it's written is not appropriate for our journal but they're actually really poignant in terms of their commentary on a topic so you know it's just it's really kind of nice to be able to just engage with so many people and their minds and their hearts and everything through, through their writing. What a gift that you're seeing in, in what the submissions are for you, but also in even sharing, uh, Sakin in particular, that vul- vulnerability around your own self-loathing, as you put it, or the, that kind of criticism that happens when, when we're writing, which is, which is a universal truth, but also sometimes easy to forget. What other projects are you each working on right now? I am working on um, uh, two novels, actually. I keep switching back and forth uh, whenever I get frustrated with one. I sort of turn to the other for refuge. Um, But one of them, which actually uh, very early, the first first two or three issues of the journal, uh, we actually published some sections of it. So for three years, I've been researching this novel that is basically a history of the ballet, uh, but fictional as funneled through one character who's reincarnated in uh, many eras of 
uh, in different royal courts in Europe and Russia uh, during the heyday of the ballet in each of those. Uh, and it ends up, the last section is in New York City. Uh, I'm trying to write it as a novel slash libretto version. So sort of incorporating some of the style of ballet within the prose, uh, like the movements of ballet within the movement of the prose. And that the first two, two sections have been published uh, in the magazine, which was, it was very nice to be able to share those. And so now I'm working on individually finishing that as a novel and hopefully publishing it uh, under a small press we have, which is one of, uh, one of the activities of Lazuli Literary Group. Yeah, I'm um, sort of right now focused on a photography project where I'm really creating work that uses analog photography as well as digital photography and and trying to create work in that intersection because I started out as an analog photographer, you know, with film and in the dark room. Um, And there's a certain magic that happens with the analog process that is lost in digital photography. So I'm very much interested in finding a space between the two where that that sort of magic and anticipation and experimentation and chance that happens um, can still exist. So that's I'm in the midst of honing in on on that right now. And then hopefully we would like to publish um, a small book that includes work from the three of us, myself, Sakina, and our illustrator. So hopefully, you know, we'll be able to do something like that in the next year or two, just to kind of put our work out there as artists as well. I look forward to seeing that. Um, Can you tell me about any other lit mags that you love, that you maybe one one each, if you wanted to name one that particularly appealed to you? Uh, I was very interested in Apogee Journal. Um, I think they have stopped um, doing the print journal, as far as I know, Um, but that focused on writers of color and uh, it also included visual art in it. So a lot of the uh, visual artists from the fine art world that I encounter had work in the journal as well. So I thought it was a really unique space of um, that, you know, a combination of those two and then what's happening there. I love inter- like contemporary international literary fiction, you know, from writers all over the world. So that that's really like something that I really like in that journal seemed to sort of be, you know, reflecting that from the ground up. Lovely. How about you, Sakina? So there are uh, a few journals that I really was interested in the the format or I, the idea behind the format of them. One of them, um, which I'm sure many have heard of, have heard of is <clears throat> One Story. Um, and the idea that, you know, and uh, the format of the journals each time they send out just one story. And the idea that, that they believe that one story to have the integrity to be considered thoughtfully and carefully and um, sort of slowly by itself and in depth. So to me, that signals the experience of, I'm imagining people are reading that one story, not just once, but several times because it's the only one in there. So that the idea that that was founded upon, I thought was really interesting. Um, and uh, also McSweeney's uh, had interesting ways of distributing, you know, either in different volumes or different kinds of packaging in the beginning. Um, and I know we had, in, in the beginning, I brought up the idea of using like a, a broadsheet, uh, which we have sort of translated into the design of this book, but I really wanted it to be sort of in a newspaper-like format that harkens to you know, uh, Dickensian times where there were illustrations within, uh, illustrations about the piece within the piece and that it was sort of provided like, like news, but in a fiction manner. So it would have the same effect as, as news possibly would. Um, so how can writers follow or connect with you? Um, we have a newsletter that you can sign up for on our website. You can subscribe to it on the website. We also have a Facebook page, which is Lazule Literary Group, which is probably the most active. We have a Twitter account, which is at Lazule Literary. That's L-A-Z-U-L-I Literary. And we do have at Lazule Literary on Instagram as well, where we try to keep up with the illustrations in the journal and a little bit of news about what's happening about publishing and things. But, you know, Facebook or Twitter is probably the best location. And yeah, and uh, there's also a contact form on the website. If you have specific questions about submissions, we're happy to answer those. 
um, and uh, submissions and contests are through our website also. And the newsletter, signing up, subscribing to the newsletter is actually good because we do send out a newsletter with every online issue that's published and then notification of the print journal publication and notification of any um, events or readings we might be participating in. So that's a good space where you get most of the information. Wonderful. And then for each of you personally, what's the best way if, if someone wanted to follow you or, or find out what you're up to? Um, well, I have a website, which is dianamcclure.com. So I can be reached through the website. And then I'm probably most active on um, Instagram, although I'm not a super social media person. <laughs> but that's probably the most active space for me right now. And your username there? Oh, sorry. It's um, Diana McClure NYC. And I actually do have a Twitter page, which is the same, Diana McClure NYC as well. So for me, uh, I have probably even (laughs) less social media visibility than Diana says that she has. Um, So the website is probably the best way to contact me. And then uh, there's a page that lists uh, where I add to uh, on my staff page, the publication. So whenever new publications come up, I would post them there. That's probably the best way. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your Lit Mag love with me today. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Here's some takeaways from my conversation with the editors at Azure, or Azure, it's uh, As You Wish is how you pronounce it. Probably the most important thing that they repeated a lot was that it's important to maintain that rawness in their writing. And it's pretty clear from listening to them that this is an avant Guard publishing experience and for writers who can craft sentences that don't make readers want to skim to the end because we have no idea how it will go. So they're looking for a lot of innovation and most of the work that they publish taps into some philosophical element and they have a lot of submissions from people who studied philosophy. So if you fit that bill, this is a place for you. They're publishing unique, cerebral and empathetic work, submissions of things they have not imagined before. In terms of the editorial experience, the back and forth, the work that they want should be finished. So less, they're less available for mentorship than they are to doing an equal collaboration. And you can read Azure at lazulyliteraryGroup.com. The link will be up on litmaglovepodcast.com. But that's lazuli, L-A-Z-U-L-I-L-I-T-E-R-A-R-Y group, G-R-O-P.com. All one word. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975, and the Lit Mag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for the episode is done by Micah Lemiski, and I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. If you want to give us some love in the form of a review wherever you get your podcast, we would love that, and it really helps other writers discover the podcast. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at litmaglove. Thanks for writing and reading literature, and thanks for listening to Litmaglove. Love.